Hello, I'm Kane Winstead. And I'm Matthew Dergish. And you're listening to The Untold Talks of Spider-Man. Welcome to The Untold Talks of Spider-Man, where we'll be taking a look at the deep cuts and forgotten stories of the Spider-Man library, looking for lost gems and what it truly means to be a Spider-Man story. Before we begin, if you'd like to learn more about our hosts, you can check out our preview episode on SuperiorSpiderTalk.com or under Untold Tales of Spider-Man on iTunes. Now that we have that out of the way, Matt, tell the listeners what we'll be discussing today. Today, we're talking about Amazing Spider-Man, Soul of the Hunter. <laughs> For those uninitiated, Soul of the Hunter is the sequel to Craven's Last Hunt. Matt, how about, uh, can you tell the listeners how this got made? Like, like what, what vexed Marvel to make a sequel to Craven's Last Hunt? The Soul of the Hunter was created in a very peculiar fashion compared to most comics because this was almost mandated. After Craven's Last Hunt, there was a large body of parents groups, concerned moms, that kind of thing, that came out saying the story in a way glorified suicide. And whereas often creators don't want to go back and people are going to have their interpretations and let people read into it as they will... This time, uh, Demetrius felt that he didn't want to leave that hanging and he wanted to do something more with it. The timing of it makes that statement that's come from him somewhat peculiar as it took five years for this standalone prestige issue to come out from the initial date of Craven's Last Hunt. And, I, I mean, he, he brought back both the penciler and the anchor from... Craven's Last Hunt, so it it looks and reads like a sequel in that like the same creatives are behind it. But yeah, five years after the fact. Alright, we'll be giving our final thoughts on the issue once we finish, but uh, before we dive in, just how essential do you think this is, Matt? Because uh, right now, you cannot get Soul of the Hunter digitally. It's not available on Unlimited or Comixology. Um, you can find it pretty pretty easily in the discount bins at your local comic shops. It's also right now for less than like going for about less than five dollars on eBay and Amazon. Whenever I checked right before we started recording, but uh, how just just how important do you think this is to read? Uh, if if you know if if Craven's Last Hunt is clearly a ten out of ten, everyone should read it. Not necessarily just Spider Man fans. How, how 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 would you rate I this? I kind of rate this on the relation of its lineage. So Craven's Last Hunt is often widely regarded to be considered one of the most important Spider-Man stories you should read. I want to dig into that a little bit later. But because this directly addresses something that no other comic at the time really dealt with, which was the f- fact that spider-man was buried alive and the fact that that would have some toll on someone this gives some resolution to that and for that alone i definitely think if you're wanting to follow the spider-man story through and through 
this is a necessary pickup. But if you're willing to just move on from the fact that uh, Spider-Man was able to get past that and it was so long ago, it might feel not consequential to resolve that emotional hook, um, you can definitely forego this one. I feel kind of the same way. Uh, I'm, I'm a little surprised because I think going into this, we both were... From from our previous reads, we, we were both pretty hard on the story, but rereading it for the podcast, uh, I felt like it was a lot stronger than I remembered it. Uh, now, would I call it essential? Not particularly, but like you said, there, there's some meat to this story, especially regarding the psychological com uh, component of just what Spider-Man had to go through, and it's not really something that's touched upon in comics very often. In fact, I think... I think uh, DC is just about to start some kind of initiative or storyline with Tom King where he, he deals with like the, the PTSD that superheroes have through, you know, from the years of all the stuff they go through. And then that's definitely what the story deals with, at least in the front half. But I'm starting to get a little bit ahead of myself. So this story... Uh, before we recap it real quick, is definitely a story of its times, in a way. So I, I'm counting this as they went back and they made this uh, direct sequel, which was written in the 80s, kind of at the time when the dark and gritty and more psychologically examined superhero was the thing that people were doing. But by the time this came out, we were in the middle of the 90s, uh, looking at things more like uh, the Clone Saga or Maximum Carnage. And to that end, it, it makes you realize how much the Spider-Man comics are kind of defined by the time they're in. Because this would seem so tonally distant from the date it was published, but in relation to the story it was going for, it was a direct sequel. I, I just found that kind of an interesting factoid that made me re-examine it a little differently. Yeah, definitely. Like, the, the story, I think it takes place two weeks after the events of Craven's Last Hunt. So it, it really is a direct sequel. And I, I didn't think about that. Like, we're, you know, you get this somber and contemplative story right in the middle of this came out in 1992 so i think we we're just starting to swing really into uh let's see that would have been around the time that Mar the the adjective list that sounds about came right. Out, right didn't it um yeah that sounds about right um so yeah <laughs> um but let's 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 recap this a little bit for those who haven't uh, read it, so they'll have uh, a little bit more context to go off of. This starts out with Spider-Man and, or I'm sorry, Peter Parker and Mary Jane at a funeral for one of their college friends, whose name escaped Roger. Roger. Ro Roger right? Hotchberg. Roger Hotchberg, yeah, one of the inconsequential um, ESU background characters. Um, he shows up, I think, maybe in like a handful of comics spotted around the various Spider-Man comics through the years. Um, but they're at, they're at a, his the funeral for his mother. Peter has flashbacks to when he was buried alive and freaks out, leaves, goes and tries to clear his head by swinging around New York like he typically does. Uh, 
comes across the standard Spider-Man, like, friendly neighborhood situation where li Little Timmy's stuck in a well, but since they're in New York, it's Little Timmy is stuck in a construction pit. Um, has another flashback of crawling out of the pit, uh, of the grave, rather. And then uh, he comes home, he and Mary Jane have, like, a pretty pretty interesting conversation about death and the afterlife, and it's, it's uh, something that's kind of missing from modern comics, but we'll also get into that in a second. Then, then the comic kind of loses itself, and Spider-Man starts having this, like, dream where he gets visited by the ghost of Suicide Past, uh, and, like, the souls of everyone who's ever committed suicide start, like, circling above his head, and then Kraven shows up, and he looks really sad, uh, then Kraven's zombie comes up, and, and they, he and Spider-Man fight, and... Then Spider-Man realizes that his his guilt is causing him to have suicidal thoughts, and then he decides he doesn't want to commit suicide. And then he and Craven hug, and the comic's over. So if that was hard to follow, it's because it doesn't really flow very well in the comic. Uh, I, I feel like the front half is a lot stronger than the second half. What do you feel about that? In a sense, structurally, you're definitely right. I just, I, I think the idea of this back half being completely manic is the point. So, I, I mean, I know that sounds like, you know, a poor justification. I just... I think that's kind of the the energy they're going for, and it fits what they're doing, but you can't get around the fact that it is kind of bizarre to follow. It, it kind of puts you in a weird place reading it, and that's it. So uh, the emotional resonance for me kind of was hampered by the fact that it's this crazy dreamscape that they're just kind of punching in and nothing seems to you can't really tell what's real and what's not and it, that's encapsulated one little uh text box here that just says real question mark yeah there, there's definitely a lot of those like dimateus like thought bubbles within or uh, thought narration boxes within thought narration boxes and yeah like i i can see what you're talking about that perhaps like a manic kind of approach was what they wanted, but I, I just don't know if it was executed properly. Um, uh, same, same with like the ambiguity at the end, where I think MJ like very pointedly says, "But was all of it real?" Uh, uh, which I, I don't think really benefits the comic to imply that this was all like metaphorically in Spider-Man's mind. I mean, it's a comic book. Crazy stuff happens all the time. We just embrace right. it. Well, and they play on that idea of reality by bookending the, uh, with the bookends, literally. So when you open the book up, the tombstone for Craven reads, here lies Sergei Kravenov, Craven the Hunter. He died with honor. But after this whole exchange, it reads in notably different font, I might add as well. Here lies Sergei Kravenov, Craven the Hunter, free at last. So there's like a physical change marked on what's supposed to be Craven's final resting place, which, if we follow the comics years later, ends up not being the case. But um, that that's how it reads. 
That, that, that's interesting. That, that, I did not notice that. And then looking at the front cover, too, um, there's not a point to make it's there. It's a goofy so. cover. <laughs> that, that's interesting. It's a goofy cover. <laughs> but that is interesting. Um, I, I really didn't notice that. But do you think some of the impact of this story and uh, and Craven's last hunt was perhaps not robbed, but lessened by the eventual retcon that Craven comes back to life. Like this story is about Craven's, you know, his soul is free. He's, he's at peace. Do you think that, do you think Craven's, mm-hmm. or I'm sorry, Grim Hunt is, uh, do you think that changes kind of the, the context of this story? I personally do, but I have a bias against them resurrecting characters in comics. And that bias is only heightened when they bring back a character to not have any story to tell with them initially. They just want to bring them back, which is exactly what happened with Craven. He was brought back and then they didn't really tell a story with him right away. And then he's been kind of floating around the Marvel Universe here and there. He's been in Squirrel Girl. He's been in Jessica Jones as, as a bit character. There's there's been no big Craven story that had to be told, and certainly nothing that could have been told with his children or Calypso in any way. So I I felt something was robbed. But when I read these stories, I don't necessarily think about that one. So it's not that big of a deal in the end, I guess. Well, How about you? I feel like. Because because Craven's last hunt was revisited in Grim Hunt, it kind of takes the sacred cow aspect of the story away a little bit. So in some ways, I feel like it paves the way for a sequel, which I know is a weird, like revisionary way to look at the story since uh, Grim Hunt came out rather recently compared to uh, Soul of the Hunter, but I did not read Soul of the Hunter until after I read Grim Hunt. So, I, you know, looking looking at reviews for this story online, it, it gets savaged. And, you know, in some part, rightfully so. It's definitely an uneven story. I, I, just, I just feel that perhaps, perhaps it got treated a little unfairly just because it was a sequel to a very good comic and while this is not a terrible comic it's not awful i think people saw it that way just because it wasn't the same level of quality as uh craven's last hunt right i also think it's kind of weird to look at it because it it would take some uh historical reconstruction to understand craven's character as it stood even by soul of the hunter versus grim hunt because they added so much to the backstory in his family post-mortem that the fact he just kind of was in a mansion all alone and decided to end it versus the character that pops out immediately in grim hunt we're almost talking about different people right well you know comic book reviews nothing new um (laughs) but yeah, I, I, I kind of want to talk about just the, the front half of the story and just it's it's a very strong, I think, I feel like examination of the effects of uh, 
of PTSD on on the superhero. Like Spider-Man freaks out in front of a bunch of kids and swings away. Like what what what, what did you think about that that segment where he tries to rescue the kid? I, in the I mean, I think that's bit? probably the most powerful part of this entire comic. The idea that Spider-Man's that disturbed, like he's Cracker Jacks, he's gone. And he shouldn't be out trying to save people because he needs to deal with himself. Which is part of the reason I think this comic is actually relatively important for Spider-Man compared to a lot of more throwaway stories. But also, earlier in the comic, when he's at the funeral in particular, um, it became very clear to me that this book was kind of done by these people who know their craft but was being rushed through there there's a few art ticks with some facial expressions in particular that are a bit off and i noticed there's a typo uh really quick that said by mary jane she says she she's missing a contractual point something relatively small but it was just obvious that uh this was burned through pretty quickly and something that they decided to do but was rushed through the clearest way you can see that is just how on the nose, which is a term I used earlier, some of the dialogue is like, so Spider-Man is fighting Craven's zombie and trying to wrestle with his guilt over everyone he's died. And then, and then it comes to the point where he's like, well, everyone I try to save dies anyway, so maybe I should die. And then, and then, and then all of a sudden he shouts, uh, he's like, he's not going to turn, turn my back on the most precious gift there is, which going back to the genesis of this comic is reaching almost to the point of like after school special, like, uh, and I, I think hurts not just necessarily the storytelling, but kind of the impact, um, you know, when, when you treat something with such precious terminology, it kind of robs the emotional impact. Uh, it, it becomes too sacred. I think you definitely have a point there. I, I feel like the churn of it's correct and very Spider-Man going for the most kind of self-defeating or immediate id of the idea and then resolving that with doing the right thing. But I, I think that impulse to just do the wrong thing and then building down and then doing the right thing, to me, is the most Peter Parker move there is. That's why we relate to him, but also find him to be a hero. And I also think you have a point in that it's a little overboard in this example. <laughs> um... <laughs> But that relates to what you're getting to with the PTSD earlier, wasn't it? Yes. Um, so much of this comic is just Spider-Man trying to heal from, or rather, Peter Parker, really. Uh, there's not much Spider-Man in this outside of the whole zombie thing. Um, but it's Peter Parker trying to deal with what happened to him and and the toll that this is taking already starting to take on his new marriage with Mary Jane. And I think I think part of what resonated with uh this first half of this comic is how much of a role Mary Jane plays in this. 
Um, it's it's reminiscent, I think, of you know later JMS also has Mary Jane play this kind of grounding role for Peter whenever he goes off into his his guilt and his spiral. She's the one who kind of picks him up and says, "Hey, yeah." She says, uh, "Peter Parker, you're born guilty." I think that's just it, that's such a good line. Like that so that so encapsulates the the Peter Parker character uh, is is this this sense of guilt that drives him. Uh, I mean, I realize it's it's hard to essentialize a character that has sixty years worth of stories or seventy years or however many years Marvel decides at any given point. Uh, I, I think it really depends how close they are to some kind of anniversary, but. Um, I think if you were going to essentialize the character, that line would be what, you know, what you would use. Going back to, again, why I think this is necessary, not necessarily a bad comic, but one worth reading is, is that it does encapsulate in a very short space. Like, this is only, I think this is just a double-sized issue, um, technically printed as a graphic novel, but yeah, yeah, it's 40, 47 pages. So in just a very short short amount of space, uh, Demetrius is able to just really introduce, reintroduce uh, Spider-Man's identity, um, especially his identity post this extremely traumatic incident. It does do everything you said. I, I think part of the battle I had with reading this story, and in a way, Craven's Lost Hunt as well, is the fact that this is supposed to be a Spider-Man comic, and this goes too heavy. Uh, it, it's hard to reconcile the fact that we're uh, fighting the zombie of and the eternal soul of Craven the Hunter, a man who wears a leopard print bikini and shoots lasers out of his nipple eyes. Uh, it, it, it's just... It, I, I know that there's a range of tone you can go for, and I feel like... Craven's Last Hunt hits it pretty well and hits that balance because you're sucked in the entire time. And this becomes so melodramatic that it's hard to not kind of fight against when you read it with nearly any other Spider-Man comic. But this was so in the vein of what they were doing in the 80s during that grim and gritty. Definitely, I agree. And I think... Going back to it, part of it is, again, just how saccharine it gets at times. Uh, really, really goes and is what, what you're fighting against when you're reading this. Just because, like, yeah, totally this book is weird and, like, it ends with them hugging it out. Like, like that, that's how this comic ends, is that Spider-Man, like, climbs up from the pit again and shouts, like, I choose life. And then the the Grim Reaper or whoever it's supposed to be, since the Grim Reaper is like five different characters have that name, and one of them is actually Death. And anyway, it's some sort of specter. Says like, Craven is now free. Like because you chose life, Craven is now free. And then he and Spider Man, like his his spirit and Spider Man hug, and then it's resolved. And so. Like, like I said earlier, we, we take a lot from comic books. Like, it, you have to you have to stretch it pretty far before someone says, like, I don't know about that. And that, I think, is the point where 
I'm not entirely sure if that's what should that's have happened. fair, and I think it's nearly impossible to try to explore this comic without hitting on something that I am always a little unsure how to address with Marvel comics especially, which is religion and spirituality. There's no way to escape its influence in this book, and the idea that this has a very uh, Catholic overtone to it is inescapable. But it's also presuming that in the Marvel Universe, these kind of Judeo-Christianic rules are the rule of law there, which fits a lot of other stuff in a way, but that's always something that's been a weird thing to try to figure where uh, Spider-Man might, you know, be talking with Thor the next issue, or Ghost Rider, or uh, losing his marriage with Mephisto. <laughs> well, it's also framed by these uh, by a, right. a Jewish funeral. Like the the Roger is is Jewish, and I mean they even bring it up toward the end, like very pointedly. They talk about the uh, I'm, I'm probably going to mispronounce this, but the, the Shiva, the sitting Shiva, uh, the the morning ritual, and he, he talks about how it's comforting to him, even though he's really not a uh, practicing Jew. I think he even claims that he's atheist. So yeah, it's. Religion definitely plays into this, but in a very peculiar way. Which, well, you know, he, he claims he's an atheist, which I think is weird. A weird thing to say in the Marvel Universe, because like you said, you know, Thor's flying around, um, you know, Hercules is on the Avengers, uh, Galactus shows up all the time. Like, there clearly there are, you know beings who have like near godlike powers so to claim that like there is no such thing as a deity it's just it's it's a little silly but at the same time to tell like a story that resonates on a deeper uh deeper level than just you know a guy in tights punching another guy in the tights you have to approach the you have to approach these uh human themes and you know people's expectations i guess with the afterlife and their religions are some of you know some of the deepest wells you can go and draw from and so i think it's it's interesting how demateus tries to kind of mix those those in together i, I think part of the reason why he has a you know why this is framed with like a jewish funeral well, no, it, it is framed with the Jewish funeral, and I think part of that is to kind of talk on the idea that it's about spirituality and resting in the afterlife, and not in specifically in a way to not tie it to any particular religion. To avoid, keep in mind, again, this book was written in response to a lot of angry moms at the time who presumably came from a Christian bent, but if you kind of made it then an attack on, or could be perceived an attack on a religion, uh, that they'd be right back at square one in a way. So to, and maybe that explains why they use this uh, Roger Hoshberg is to kind of add with that element a, a different religion to kind of take the sting out of that idea at least. Before we close out the uh, the discussion on this, we, we've been we've been focusing pretty much on the, the text. Uh, 
what about what about the art? Did you have any any thoughts or opinions on the art here? I mean, like I said, uh, it's the same creative team, so the same art team. I think the colorists are different, but as as Craven's last hunt, uh, how, how do you feel about how do you feel about that for this for this one? I think Zach did an amazing job. I I think it says a lot that we couldn't really tie the art to the story discussion very well because they almost feel disparate here but that that is to undercut what Zach did because what he did was what we asked for on the art is incredible kind of almost cinematic direction we always get a sense of setting when we're just having Mary Jane and Peter talk in their apartment we get a sense of their apartment as we get shots of through the doorway from from one room to another that they're going to go into you just get a sense of place no matter what the the craft on display is incredible and rarely seen but the the story being so esoteric most of the time this kind of netherscape means we don't really need an artist with that kind of ability to sell this story so i feel like the artist is almost underserved by the script in this case. Yeah, I'll, I'll agree with that. Um, you know, I, I think part of the reason why they brought him back and and Bob McLeod, McLeod was just so it would feel more of a continuation of Craven's Last Hunt since this was five years later. But you're right, it seems underserved and I don't want to say pointless, but Someone else could have definitely done the same job. Just, it wouldn't have looked the same. Definitely. <laughs> I guess it's true of literally any comic ever, so that was, you know, a very a very poignant point <laughs> I made. No, I know what you mean, though. <laughs> like, if you got any other regular Spider-Man artist on here, I don't think it would have made much of a difference to how we felt about the story overall, because there's so much just kind of netherscape, or however you want to call it, that anyone else drawing it as long as they did a decent job there wasn't really room for the artist to kind of put their touch on it yeah tell a story well i think i think that's enough for uh <laughs> soul of the hunter we, we okay so we finished talking about it are do your opinions still feel the same like do you, do you still feel like this is you hit on something that kind of made me tilt my opinion where this book kind of goes past the pale for where Spider-Man works as a character and it hits something that usually is hit more in a Batman comic and is part of the reason I'm not as big of a fan of Batman because there's just kind of this moral idea that they're hitting on but it, it becomes so esoteric that it almost loses meaning and it's trying to get more into the psychology of it but I, I like kind of more the grounded idea and kind of the reaction with humor that we normally get with Spider-Man. Uh, that sounds so high-minded, but I'm just trying to say, you know, it's more fun to read a book about a guy whose first reaction to something bad and crazy happening is to find the, the joke. Well, I mean, it's, it's funny that you mentioned the Batman thing since, you know, Craven's Last Hunt famously started out, you know, in the mind of Demetrius as a Batman story, which later became Going Sane, but that, that's just a little extra. I, I feel the same way about, I think, the story as when I started out is just, it is a solid first half of the story that if you want a quick and dirty breakdown of 
what it means to be a more mature Spider-Man, um, which sounds really pretentious. Solid breakdown of what, what it means for Spider-Man to have grown up as a superhero, which, again, is something that I feel like is really missing from the comics, especially the Dan Slott run. He never really touched on the, the experience that Spider-Man has had over the years. Did your opinion of Soul of the Hunter change as we were talking about, or are you still pretty much at a kind of average route? As far as, like, if someone came up to me and asked, like, hey, should I read this? I feel like my opinion, like, my opinion is pretty much where it was when I started. I, I, I would say, you know, if you're, if you're a casual fan, just kind of looking into maybe a darker Spider-Man story, and you've already read Craven's Last Hunt, uh, this one this one will work. This one will suffice. If you're a diehard fan, I feel like there's not really much here that you can't get elsewhere. It's it's for for what the price it goes for less than five dollars. It's worth picking up um, at least just for the art. Uh, I I know we were just talking about how it's kind of divorced from the text, but even just thumbing through it, it, it looks gorgeous. And I I always like these prestige kind of uh, trades. So I think from like a collector standpoint, it's worth picking up. Um, it's, it's not going to hurt your bank any. And like, I, like, I think, I think I got my copy, which is in fantastic condition at a con for a dollar. So that, I mean, that, that's going to be about the price you're looking at for, for this, you know, $5 if you get it online, less than that if you can find it in person. So for that price, I'd say it's worth it. Awesome. Do you think you could give this a letter grade? Ooh, a letter? See, it's so hard to give this a letter grade because there's so many like extraneous circumstances surrounding this. Um, <laughs> just by by virtue of being a sequel, by being like five years divorced from the story, like it, it's so lopsided. I would go with probably a C plus, C plus B minus. <sighs> Cheated. But I agree with it. Uh, that's, that's what I do. Uh, letter grades are always the hardest part for me. Just trying to trying to figure out exactly where to do this. But like, I would call this a better than average Spider-Man story. Like, you know, people people rag on this, but this is this is better than a lot of comic books that are coming out right now. Um, you know, not just Spider-Man comics, but just in general. You don't you don't really get comics that dive deep into themes like this anymore. Uh, so much of it is just you know characters moving through a plot rather than characters trying to examine themselves, forming any kind of growth. So I, I guess I guess to revise my already long-winded opinion, uh, <laughs> uh, if you're a fan of character growth in comics, if you're one of those people who always complains that there's never any character growth in this comic, this is the kind of story, this is kind of like the, the character-driven story rather than the plot-driven story that you would be interested in. There we go. That That's my opinion. I think that sums it up tightly. <laughs> All right, well... Thanks to everyone for listening to our first episode. We hope you enjoyed listening as much as we enjoyed doing it. Uh, for those who want a little extra, please check out the amazing Spider Talk Patreon. 
uh, which you can find links on superiorspidertalk.com or just search Amazing Spider Talk Patreon. Uh, for $3.99 a month, less than a burger combo with fries, you'll get access to Matt's and my B-Title Roundups starting next month, as well as Mark and Dan's reviews of the current Amazing Spider-Man comics. For those wanting even more, you can consider upgrading to the Excelsior Club, which is $10 a month, and not only do you get access to the exclusive Patreon-only section of the brand new Amazing Spider Talk Slack channel, but every six months you will receive exclusive commissioned art from top talent Spider-Man artists. Uh, Matt, have you seen uh, the, the Ron Friends uh, piece that, that Dan just got and posted to the, uh, to the Patreon group? I did. It's pretty cool. It has everything. It's a full piece. There's floating heads. There's figures. There's... It's got everything in there. Uh, it, I mean, it's fantastic. When he dropped, uh, when he when he dropped it and ch or did drop it when he when he dropped it to me, and I saw it. I, I mean, I literally can't say what I said because we labeled this as a clean show. But it's it's phenomenal. It's it's a Ron's friends uh, after uh, Steve Ditko. Um, it's just, it's so beautiful. It, it's $10 a month. You get two a year. Like that's, that's fantastic. You know, not, not to, not to shill too hard, but I, I guess technically it's, it's part of our show too. So it's just, it's promotion. Uh, <laughs> all right. Well, thanks again for listening to our show. Uh, since we're just starting out, it would be extremely helpful if you could go out and give us a review and comment on iTunes. That's just how the show grows and how people find it easier. Uh, if you have any suggestions, comments, rants, raves, recipes, manifestos, etc., that you would like us to hear, feel free to email us at untoldtalksofspiderman at gmail.com. That's there's no hyphen in that email. Uh, or you can contact us on Twitter at UntoldTalksSPMN. Uh, you can also find me, uh, Kane Winstead, on Twitter under the handle at KaneWrites, as in Kane writes too much. Uh, Matt, where can adoring fans leave you, missives? You can find me on Twitter at MagicalMatt42. And be sure to join us next time when we discuss the Marvel Knight Spider-Man that was written by Mark Miller and drawn by Terry Dodson. Also, be sure to check out the Spider Talk podcast where Dan Gavazgan interviews Chris Baker discussing a long lineage of Spider-Man video games. It's great stuff that we don't get to hear often enough. All right, for updates on April's show, feel free to subscribe via iTunes or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. Until Spider-Man and Craven the Hunter hug out their issues, make mine untold. That's why JJ pays me the big bucks. Say cheese!